Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today Julian Janaste, CEO of the Unlock Protocol. Julian, welcome to the show. No, I'm excited to be here. Thank you very much, Tomer. To get started, I'd love to learn more about your background and how you got into crypto. Yeah, so pretty much like yourself, I've been in tech for the last uh, 15, maybe even more years at this point. Um, and I I guess I came to the web because when I was a student, I created my first job board in France, uh, my first website, sorry, in France. And that was actually a job board for students. And very quickly, I started to get uh, job offers from large companies. And that's when I realized like the web is this amazing permissionless platform where a high school student can create a website that starts to be used by real companies and real people. And to me, that was kind of a revelation. Like, this is the first time that we have kind of a, a framework, a set of technologies that allow literally anyone in the world, anywhere they are, to start building for other people. And that really what came to excite me about the web, basically. That makes sense? Yeah, definitely. So you got excited about the web. And then what? And, and then I started to uh, I started to work on this. And I was, at the time, kind of maybe a bit naive, but assumed that the decentralization uh, aspect of the web were kind of granted and would never change. And, and despite this, um, basically, I started to see the emergence of companies like Twitter, Facebook, that you know very well as well, um, get, which are in many ways centralizing the web, like basically centralizing attention, where more and more people are using less and less websites. Uh, on a daily basis and spending more and more times watching the same content over and over again. And roughly at that time, I founded a company called Superfeeder, which uh, still exists today and provide RSS feed APIs. And for me... When was that, Julian? That was 2009, so 10 years ago at this point. Ah, okay, 2009, got it. And all of that out of Paris? Uh, no, actually, in 2009, I was in San Francisco. Uh, so that was out of out of San Francisco at the time, yeah. Um, and so Superfeeder, ISS feed API, and, and RSS, in my mind, and still to these day, are one of the core building blocks of the open web. One of the few things that make the web more open and more decentralized. Yeah, absolutely. Since I was very naive at the time, I was like, oh, this is obviously going to take over uh, the stuff that Facebook and Twitter and, and others have been doing because it's decentralized, so it's much be better. <laughs> um, unfortunately, <laughs> and pretty obviously, I guess I was wrong at the time, um, uh, most people, at least normals, as I call them, non-tech people actually have no idea what RSS is, even though it's still kind of uh, at the core of stuff like uh, podcast, which everybody knows at this point. 
Um, and so when I try to think about the lessons of why, why did RSS not kind of win over, um, I came to realize that it's a matter of business model. These large platforms, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Twitters, et cetera, et cetera, are able to monetize massive audiences much more easily than decentralized RSS feeds. Like if you want to put ads on an RSS feed, it's actually on a feed-by-feed -feed basis. It's really, really hard to advertise to millions or billions of people around the world. However, when you're Google or Facebook or Twitter, it's actually trivial to do so. Uh, you just put the ads on the stream and then all of a sudden everybody sees the ads. And so I, I slowly came to realize like this ad based business model that the web has is not only centralizing, but also kind of detrimental for the health of the web in practice, right? Okay, in what way? Uh, so basically it's leveraging attention as its core um, metric basically to optimize for. And we know what basically once you optimize for attention, what you end up doing, you end up doing stuff like slideshows maybe to get started. Um, from a user's perspective, that means that more and more content is being published leading to information overload. It also leads cre creators to now optimize for more and more attention, which eventually links to uh, stuff like clickbait, uh, inflammatory headlines, you know, all of the stuff that basically attracts the eye. It's like the, the, the crash on the, on, the, on the highway, right? Um, and so that leads us to today to even stuff like fake news in some way, where we're, even though there's more and more information published out there, it's less and less valuable, uh, less and more and more um, built just for the sake of grabbing five more seconds, 10 more seconds, one more click from, from users. And I think that's actually detrimental to, to, to the web as a tool. And that's why we're seeing stuff like Apple's, uh, you know, uh, rescue time, or actually not rescue time. Uh, I don't remember the, the, the name they use for this, but basically telling people like, stop, get away from the, get away from the, from the computer, get away from the phone. Uh, you've got something better to do. Um, and that's, I think, in response to the fact that we optimize for attention everywhere. Interesting. So, you know, during my time at Facebook, I actually worked on, on ads, right? Uh, so certainly something that's close to heart. I guess the counter argument you can make is that by tailoring the ads that you see and customizing them to stuff that's going to get your attention, you can actually, through these platforms, surface content that is more relevant for you specifically, right? So let's say, you know, you're really into sports and I'm really into, I don't know, I'm just making it up, but action movies like the platform can surface ads basically that show you more spots and shows more new action movies for me. I, I think that's true. However, I think there's also a feedback, a feedback loop that basically means that when you show me ads about action movies, now I'm even more interested about action movies, uh, which means that you're going to show me even more uh, ads about action movies and kind of folding into a trap of like being more and more... Um, I mean, uh, in a filter bubble, basically. Like, uh, and, and so action movies, pretty harmless, I'd say, not too bad. But if you think about politics, um, that's how you end up with these very kind of um, polarized crowds um, that only see one side of every single story um, when these stories are true. And I think that's actually bad. Like, we, our brains, like our stomachs, need diversity in the stuff that they get fed, fed with, right? Uh, if you only eat, uh, I don't know, uh, vegetables all day long, you're probably going to start to develop some kind of uh, illnesses. And it's the same. If you only eat meat all day long, you're going to start developing some illnesses. The, I think the healthy diet is one that actually includes a bit of everything. And so these uh, attention-driven business models, unfortunately, do not work very well uh, in the context, I feel, uh, of kind of diversity uh, of point of view and multiplicity of experiences and cultures and things like this.
Yeah, so what I would say about that is I think you need to distinguish between different categories, right? So I can certainly see how you're right, like in when we're talking about politics, for instance, it might be beneficial to see different viewpoints and not just the side that I feel is the right one. In the case of like action films or sports, I don't know that showing you ads, these specific topics is going to make you even more so like into sports or more so into like action, right? It's just like your interest. That's kind of the, the argument. But yeah, I, I see where you're going. I, I think actually one of the benefits of the web is the ability to tailor content that's more yes. uh, relevant to you. But it does come with the cost, which I think is actually... The discovery cost. I don't think, yeah, I don't think the major cost is actually like the problem of seeing stuff that I'm most into or most interested in. I think it's more related to how that data is being gathered. That's also very true as well. Everything around privacy. Yep. That is also exactly one of the problems, like everything around privacy and how data is being collected and kind of uh, served back to us in another form. Another problem that I can see and that actually I think few people tend to see, as, I mean, um, like I do, is the is the issues around uh, um monetization itself is actually pretty bad through attention. Uh, one of the examples that I give all the time is roughly at this point in the US, at least uh, the average uh, number of minutes spent per day on Facebook and Netflix is roughly the same. People spend about an hour on Facebook a day and about an hour on Netflix a day in the US. However, if you look at the revenue per minute spent, Netflix's revenue is actually three times higher. And so I would argue that even attention-driven business models are actually pretty bad at capturing value created for people. If we just assume that the people vote with their feet and basically the number of time, I mean, the amount of time that they spend doing something is how much they value that, ads are actually a pretty poor way to capture that value. And that's also visible in terms of, of things. Uh, I think there was an article uh, a couple of days ago about how, uh, I think it was on The Atlantic, how Wikipedia is very, very poorly monetized uh, despite the value that it creates uh, because it actually becomes or became the de facto encyclopedia for everything in the world. Uh, and it's actually very, very poorly monetized. And the reason for this is actually because we don't pay for this and it's actually monetized in some way only through donations. And so I do think that all of these attention-driven approaches are also not only they are, as we said earlier, detrimental for the diversity, detrimental around uh, data privacy and gathering, but also not that great at capturing value. Um, and that's actually the maybe to me one of the things that I want to change is like we we're at a point where creation at that whole time's high. Like everybody can be a YouTuber, everybody can be a podcaster, everybody can take pictures, do amazing things. Uh, if we only use attention as a way to kind of reward creation, I think we're going to leave a lot of things off of the table when there's actually a lot of value being created that is not being captured. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, Facebook is a public company, so you can you can look at the revenues and the profits that it's making. I'd argue it's one of the most profitable, if not the most profitable company in the world. Yeah, but, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't be better. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it doesn't. But I wouldn't say it does a bad job of capturing value, right? So, so let's let's take let's take this further. Facebook does it better than anybody else in the ecosystem, right? And they're the biggest company, and yet they actually don't do it better than, say, Netflix. How do you measure that? Like when you say they don't do it, is it just because you're saying like the amount of time people spend on these on this platform is similar, and and Netflix uh, revenues per user are higher? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the, the, the thing is, right, like for Netflix to generate these revenues, they have huge costs. In fact, Netflix is losing money 
while Facebook is one of the most profitable, printing money. as I said. That, that's yeah. my point. But 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 the fact that they're kind of, uh, again, uh, losing money is because of their cost structure. It's not about the revenue that they capture, right? The revenue that they, Netflix capture more money per minute spent by a user than Facebook does. That's all I'm saying. I, I agree with you that they maybe don't make a good uh, profit out of that amount of time that is being spent. However, they're able or people contribute more uh, than what they do through ads. That's it. I mean, when a company loses money, like if I tell you, like, let's double our revenues, but guess what? We're going to double our loss uh, as a result. And we're actually going to lose more on every client that we bring on board. I don't know that it's a good model, right? If, if anything, that means that maybe Netflix doesn't charge enough. Uh, could be. Uh, but, but but that doesn't remove the fact that they would still, I mean, if they charge more, they would still capture more money than, again, uh, uh, Facebook does. But forget about this. Even thinking about Facebook is literally orders of magnitude better at generating revenue from ads. Like the CPMs out of Facebook and Google are orders of magnitude better than anybody else in the industry, right? So even these two companies that are supposedly the best at extracting value from time spent are actually not, that my point is this. Even the best two companies that are extracting value from time spent are actually not capturing as much as companies that are arguably not doing that great of a job, uh, as you said, uh, pricing their stuff um, through direct consumer revenue. But maybe we're going too far in this. In this, <laughs> no, it's it's okay, it's okay. And so you see an opportunity to improve on that model. And how do you see that? Can you describe what unlock is and what the business model is? Yeah, exactly. So before before going that, basically what I, what I, the opportunity that I'm seeing is like I think generally, uh, and that's kind of a massive trend in my mind. We're moving away from that attention supported economy to what what I call the membership driven economy, where basically rather than pay with my eyeballs, I actually pay to be part of a group. And if you think about the web uh, and communities, that's roughly the root of the web, like the early BBS and and kind of forums uh, or newsletters that we started to see literally 20 years ago are the first example of this. Like, I want to be part of that group. I want to be part of that amount of people doing X and Y and Z or getting to do X and Y and Z. And I think we're slowly move, moving toward back toward that model. If you think about paywalls, which are pretty much everywhere at this point on the uh, on the, on the the web, they're the same idea, right? Like, I pay to be part of the people get, that can read the, the, the content on the New York Times or Washington Post. Okay, so basically a membership, a membership economy. So similar to how I subscribe, say, to like the New York Times or The Economist. Yeah, but even like Netflix is a good example of this or, or YouTube. If you think about YouTube, YouTube obviously is still vastly monetized through ads. However, a couple months ago, they introduced the ability for anyone to become a member of a given channel. And that's actually $5 a month. So I don't think it's available. I don't know if it's available everywhere in the world, but in the US at least, if there's a channel that you really like, uh, whatever that is, uh, one of my favorite channels is Primitive Technology. You know, it's a guy in Australia that actually builds uh, huts in the woods and you can pay $5 a month to be part of the channel. You don't see ads and you get like special perks like the ability to leave comments and things like this on the video. Okay. I do think that's actually a very valid business model that we're going to see more and more of that. The interesting thing about it, and I think it's what you alluded to earlier, right? We're starting to see... Also, new channels for subscription. For instance, I think it's becoming more and more popular to to see subscriptions for newsletters. Yep, and Substack is a good example of that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Substack's entire business model is based on that. But memberships aren't new, right? Like people have been subscribing to 
you know, newspapers for decades now. How is how is Unlock different, if you can talk a yeah. bit about what you guys are doing? So that's exactly right. It's not new, and it's still massively disorganized. Like, every single website has a different type of membership, right? A different object in computer science term, a different class, a different database on which data, the, the membership sits. One of my big assumptions is, like, by normalizing, and when I say normalizing, it's really in a computer science sense. It's like making it standard, we can now make it really, really easy for people to subscribe and subscribe, share subscription, do a lot of different things that we can come back to later, increasing uh, conversion rates and kind of feeding a, a positive feedback loop. So now basically my point is like, we start to have these memberships, they're more and more in more and more places. We mentioned Substack newsletters, we mentioned paywalls, you can think of software licenses as well. Like uh, 10 years ago, when you build software and you say, I'm going to charge people, people are like, oh no, you're not going to charge. Like it, it was hard. Like you would still monetize some software with ads. At this point, everybody uses app stores or play stores and unlock new levels in games and stuff, stuff like this. There's still ads, but um, another viable option is actually now to pay for stuff in, using in-app purchases. And I think that's the same kind of approach here that we're seeing. The challenge though, is that, as I said, these are disorganized, require users to sign up on every single service, providing their email address and information, kind of exposing more private data, putting their credit card number in each of these, which is actually not that easy to do on mobile devices. But I do believe that there is a world in which we kind of normalize, make it the same experience everywhere where users just have, and that's kind of piggybacking on the, on the app store experience, just one way to unlock anything, one click to unlock anything they want on the web, on apps they love and, and use on a daily basis. And that's what Unlock is about, is building basically the, and that's why it's a protocol, the shared interface infrastructure for all memberships around the web. Got it. So basically using like a one-stop shop or one interface where you go to subscribe to whatever it is that you want to subscribe to. Yep. But you're familiar with yep. the interface, the billing, the way it works and so forth. Exactly. And you don't even have to go to that place because that can actually be something that is distributed in the sense that I can go to New York Times website and unlock the content using unlock on their website without having to go to unlock to do that. In the same way that when you log in on pretty much every website in the world today, you just click on a Facebook button and you get this experience there. You don't have to go to Facebook to log in on New York Times, if that makes any sense. Makes any sense. What are the benefits of creating this one-stop shop? So obviously familiarity, right? So I'm already familiar with the interface. I'm comfortable using it. I trust it. Beyond that, what else? So one of the cool benefits that I think a lot of, about is the ability to build bundles is now if uh, kind of a membership to the New York Times is the same thing as a membership to um, Slack, the software, then, and I don't know if that makes any sense <laughs> as an example, but I could basically, or New York Times and Slack could agree to build a bundle where now I pay just once to get access to both services. And that's something that becomes really easy. Up until now, if you're a large company, a large media site, and you wanted to bundle, you would have to compare user databases kind of a nightly basis or and, and see if people are subscribed to both uh, and then give access to one because they have a subscription to the other one. It's kind of a nightmare. But with that idea of decoupling the membership from the place where it's being consumed, it becomes really trivial to actually build a bundle by giving access to people that have a key to another lock. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, and you could see how there might be some um, overlap between exactly. uh, some subscriptions, right? So yep. if you like the New York Times, maybe you're going to want to subscribe to another news-related, yep. I guess, provider and so forth. 
Yeah, but even I, I mean, the, the example of New York Times works well, but like you could also imagine like, all right, I'm a lot into, as you said earlier, uh, sports. Is that me or no? I think that was you in sports, but you could subscribe to the sports section on many different websites. And now there's a bundle of like sports news that is like includes the New York Times sports section, the or Le Monde sports section in France. And now you have a bundle of all of the sports section that you might be interested in that would cover basically your favorite teams all around the world. If that, if, if that Yeah, sense. that's a really interesting use case, right? Because maybe like if you just subscribe to the sports section in Le Monde, then, you know, you don't pay the same amount as you would if you subscribe to the whole um, exactly. paper. Uh, but then you, instead, you can subscribe to, let's say, sports sections in other uh, leading publications and it starts getting really interesting. Yeah. Another cool, interesting aspect of the fact that they're using the same kind of object is the fact that I could trade one for the other. So for example, let's say, and that actually happens today, pretty much every day, I've got a New York Times subscription, it's good, and there's an article in Washington Post that I want to read, and I've bumped already into the paywall. At this point, I cannot say, hey, you know what? I'll swap or I'll trade my New York Times subscription for a little bit of the Washington Post subscription so I can read that specific article. But if they're the same model, I could say, hey, I'm going to give away, say, an hour of my New York Times membership, so it's being reduced by an hour, to get an hour of Washington Post. And that's something that becomes possible if and only if they're the same kind of object. What's really interesting about this, you may say, hey, but why would publishers do that, right? They want to lock in people. It's because for them, it's a way to actually monetize a secondary market as well. They could say, all right, Julian, if you want to swap an hour of New York Times for another Washington Post, you'll have to actually give us back two hours of New York Times. And so this way now I've reduced my membership to New York Times by a longer time so that I could access something else. And that means that I'm going to have to resubscribe or renew earlier to the New York Times uh, versus uh, not being able to read that content. That's interesting. And it also introduces, I think, another potential innovation here, which is how do you actually subscribe, right? So we tend to think about like a monthly subscription fee. But maybe, you know, using this model, like maybe it's based on time. Exactly. It is actually. And I have like an allotted time per month to read the New York Times. And then, like you said, like I give up an hour or two of my monthly quota in order to get uh, some time to read something else. But it just introduces like different ways to monetize membership that goes beyond just a monthly fee. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's, a, that, that's I mean, you need it. Basically, there is... Changing the pattern and kind of normalizing these memberships means that there's a ton of things that become possible that were way too complicated to build before. Another one that I really like about the paywalls, like somebody shares a, a paywall article with me, it sucks, I can't read it, and I'm frustrated. Now, I could share a link with you and then give you a little bit of my time. So it's like, cool, I've got a membership to this. I think it's a really interesting article you should read about. Here is like not only the link, but it comes with five minutes or 10 minutes worth of my membership so that you can read it. Yeah, I mean, I can also see just a model where it's paper, paper click, basically, or paper article. Can end up being like that, yes, for sure. Yeah, so I really want to read that specific article. You know, I pay a certain amount, I get access to it. Presumably, it's a higher amount than... Than the monthly one, yeah. Yeah, then, but, uh, but, but it still gives me access. Right now, again, if I want to get access, oftentimes I have to, you know, I have to do like whole... a monthly membership or something. Yep. Yep, exactly. So basically, all Unlock is about is like reducing friction. And all of these use cases, I do believe, are reducing friction. They're solving different problems to increase conversion rate and make it more viable for newspapers, but creators in practice, because we keep talking about New York Times, but that actually applies to music or video in any way, uh, so that they have better ways to monetize their work than just through attention that are more aligned with the interest of people reading their content.
Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that, actually. Does it go beyond just content? Like, when you say music, like how do you imagine that model extending even farther than what we just talked about? Yeah, so I could basically be uh, myself an artist and recording music, and I would say I'm going to sell access to my song. So basically, you purchase a month worth of listening to my latest album uh, using a membership model, and then you can uh, listen to that album. Uh, the interesting aspect of this is like I could also kind of reuse. So I say, hey, if you purchase that membership to to listen to my, my latest album for a month, you get a, I mean, you also get a pass that gives you access to my concert. So if I'm playing if I'm playing in a in a in a bar or in a in a concert room next month, then the fact that you're a member to my group of uh, monthly subscribers, if you wish, gives you access to that to that venue as well. And so that that works in the same way. You pay for the membership, and the perks that the membership allows could be stuff like reading gated content, but could also be access to venues, uh, ability to listen to things, ability to participate into my uh, you know Instagram has this now big trend where you can message, um, and I'm not a big user of Instagram, but you can message uh, your closest family, or your, I don't remember the name, you probably know of that, but you know your closest uh, group of followers. Yeah, well, it gets really interesting. Like when I think about it, right, in the music example, for instance, there's another issue, which is you have that agent problem, right? So let's say I'm an artist, I put out a new song, many people listen to it, it's on Spotify. I only get a fraction of that. Right of the of the revenues being generated by all the people who subscribe to a monthly Spotify subscription. Obviously, using what you suggest, basically you bypass that middleman in in this case Spotify, and you know it's a direct transaction between the artist and the person listening to the song. Yep, exactly. That that's also one of the benefits of using this. And maybe we should mention this because we haven't done it, I think, since the beginning. But this is blockchain based. So what one of the key aspects of this mem normalized membership in my mind is that it needs to be permissionless. It needs to be decentralized. I don't want to live in a world where somebody can say, hey, you know what? Um, this publication cannot be published anymore. Or this artist, no, this music is now forbidden. Or that software, nope, not used anymore. And in the world that we have right now where these memberships are managed in some way, like App Store things like Apple or Google, that is actually the case. Google or Apple will and do remove content or apps on a daily basis from their stores. By building uh, on blockchain, which is what Unlock does using the Ethereum chain, we actually make it permissionless. Not even us can take away a membership when somebody has created one. Yeah, so it sounds like you had this in mind for a very long time. You mentioned that already in 2009, you started working on something that doesn't sound Correct me if I'm wrong, too far from what you're working on right now. I mean, it's, it's not far, but at the same time, it's not, you know what I mean? I, th I like the idea of basically threading on the same idea. And so no matter what, yes, some of that was already there in 2009. It, it, it was not there. <laughs> uh, but, but in 10 years from now, it will be kind of the same idea will have obviously evolved and, and bring new things. Yeah. So I guess my, my question was, why do you think it hasn't been done uh, so far, is it really just because of the advent of blockchain technology? I mean, is blockchain really essential to to this model? So I think from a technical perspective, yes, that's one of the reasons. But I don't think tech technology is the only reason why things don't happen. I also think that uh, we were not already in the situation of fatigue around attention-driven business models. Like I do think that the last maybe two, three years, we started to see a shift 
in people's perception around uh, how they consume content or how they spend their times. And I think that is kind of driving that membership economy that I mentioned earlier. Um, so even if we had, and we kind of had the very early blockchain 2009, I guess the white paper, the Bitcoin white paper was from that time. Uh, even if we had had the technology at the time, I don't think the kind of the market in some way was ready uh, to envision other ways to monetize things um, that that are now starting to emerge. Okay, interesting. Can you explain how people use the unlock protocol? Like, do you need a stable coin to do that? Or how does it actually work? Yeah, so uh, let's talk first the, the from, from the creator's perspective, and then we'll talk from the consumer's perspective. So as a creator, yeah. basically, I want to create what I call my membership. So in, in, in the unlock world, we call that a lock. I'm going to create a lock. This is a smart contract deployed on the Ethereum blockchain and this obviously open source and, and you can find this uh, on our GitHub. Uh, and when you create a lock as a creator, you set a bunch of things. Uh, you set the number of keys that you want to sell. So how many members you want to have. For a newspaper doing a paywall, that's probably unlimited. But for an artist selling access to their latest song, they might say, hey, only my top 100 true fans can actually do that, right? So number of keys. The second parameter is the, how long each key is valid for. So I can say, hey, each key gives access for a month, a week, a year, a minute, whatever. It's uh, the creator's decision, right? The next one, obviously, and then that starts to be uh, about price. You pick the currency. So right now, since we're built on the Ethereum blockchain, you can only choose a currency that is powered by Ethereum. So it can be Ether or any ERC-20, including, and you alluded to that, any stable coin. So if you want to say, hey, I'm going to charge five DAI, which is five US dollars a month, then you can do that. You can also say, I'm going to charge... 10 bat or 20, I don't know, uh, some other ERC20 that, 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 that you can, uh, that you know of. And you obviously um, um, uh, choose not only the currency, but also the amount uh, in that currency that you want to charge. Just to be clear, the subscriber chooses that or the publisher? No, the publisher, the creator. The publisher, like, got it, got it. We're, we're from the creator's perspective. The creator can also choose a bunch of other characteristics that we haven't mentioned, but like how, what's the cancellation policy? So if somebody wants to, cancel their membership, what can they do? Can they get a refund? How much is the refund? These are params that they can set on the smart contract. Similarly, when they transfer keys, when creators, oh, sorry, when consumers want to transfer their ownership of a key, the creator can say, sure, they can do that, but I want to capture 10% of the revenue or the time being transferred or things like this. But these are kind of less important. The critical ones, as I said, uh, number of keys, duration of the key, price and currency of the key, right? Once the lock has been created on the Ethereum blockchain, it's belongs to the creator. Nobody can touch it. Like not us, nobody can modify it. Nobody can change its characteristics. It only is the creator's lock. Now, we provide a bunch of APIs that people can put on their websites to easily integrate the lock on the websites. So if my, and I've actually done that on my blog, uh, maybe I'll, sh I'll show you the link so you can put it in the show notes, but if people want to uh, unlock content on my blog, I'm using a bit of JavaScript that is being placed on my blog, which will ensure that any visitor has a key to the lock, is a member, to see that content, right? Okay. So in order to get the key, the consumer, the visitor of my site, would have to send money to the lock. And basically, we built in this site a little snippet that I mentioned. We built a UI for people to do that easily. So on my blog, I charge either, I think, five die. Actually, I just charge five die for a year. So basically, uh, you need to have DAI, uh, and then you'll be able to pay for this. We're adding a bunch of features. One of them is obviously the integration with exchanges, so that if somebody doesn't have DAI, they can still 
pay in one go the conversion of whatever they have as a currency to die to a key to my block. Got it. And is it already live? Can It sounds like people can already use that. Yeah, people can already use that. So my blog is one of the places that I, that I love to talk about because it's my blog. But obviously, we're being used on a lot more uh, platforms. Uh, last week, we actually introduced a partnership with Forbes, the large publisher, where on their site, you cannot unlock uh, content. They actually have no paywall, but you can unlock what they call an ad-free experience. So basically, if you're a member to their lock, you will not see ads on any of the Forbes.com articles for the duration of, of the key that you purchase, which can be either a week for less than $1 or a month for about $3. Interesting. I saw that announcement. Can you talk a bit more about that? Like, why did Forbes decide to collaborate with you? Again, assuming they could have introduced something like this, even using fiat. Yeah. Curious what their feedback has been like and why they decided to pursue this partnership. I obviously can't talk for them uh, completely, but two, two things. First, um, Forbes is obviously one of the publications that's all about uh, uh, business and money. And they write a lot about crypto and blockchain. And so it makes a lot of sense that uh, as a publication that writes about crypto and blockchain, they kind of dog food and say, hey, all right, not only we talk about this, but we can use, use that basically as a way, because we do think that it's actually the future of money. So that's, for me, maybe the main reason why they decided to, to do something on that front. Another one, and you mentioned this, they could have built something similar with Fiat. They could have, but it's also much harder. If they wanted to build something with Fiat, they would have to first have created user accounts. So that means creating a database where you store uh, information about people, email addresses, password, names, etc. Then they would have to add uh, the ability to capture credit card payments, which in itself, even though it's easier than it used to be, is still a lot of work. With Unlock, they don't have to do any of these things, basically. They, people can show up, and the one that have a, an extension in their, in their browser, a wallet, will be able to send money directly to Forbes' websites through their lock uh, to unlock the content. So no account to create, no password to remember, no credit card to pull from your wallet. It's all inside of the browser. It's kind of a native web experience, if you think about this. Yeah, and they save on the cost of the credit card and they can accept micropayments, right? Exactly. They save on the cost of the credit card, they can accept micropayments, and they can easily, at some point, decide to lock more content or more features on their website. I don't know if they're going to do that, but they could say, hey, you know what? Now we have special articles that are just for members. And that becomes trivial to do with something like Unlock because every time there's a visitor to their site, they can look at whether this visitor has a valid key to the, to the lock. If they do, they'll grant access. If they don't, they'll not grant access. Yeah, absolutely. That's an exciting partnership. So how long have you been working on Unlock? So um, I funded basically the company on April 1st, not an April, not an April Fool's joke, uh, 2018. So about a year and a half at this point. Uh, the first couple of months, it was just myself uh, basically working on a proof of concept and raising some funds to hire a few engineers. Uh, we raised money last summer, uh, I mean, basically summer 2018. Uh, and I've been working uh, on hiring a team and kind of uh, shipping our first product uh, earlier this year. Um, we're at a point now where we're going to kind of ramp up on all of these things. Got it. And what's next? What's next on your roadmap? Like, well, what's your vision for the company? Yeah. Uh, so one of the next things I mentioned earlier, like the ability for um, people to pay with their own currency. So again, my blog charges five DAI. You show up on my blog and you don't have DAI, you have USDC. There should be an easy way for you to turn that USDC into that into my into my into my a key to my blog. That's something that we're building. So there's a, a, a several bunch of features like this that we're building. One of the really interesting things that we're kind of uh, trying to bet on at this point is what we call composability in the Ethereum space, is the idea of combining different services. So for example, 
I put the lock on my blog. I say, hey, right, I'm going to make money with this. But I could also say, hey, I want to kind of uh, sell a share of my future revenue. So in some way, tokenize uh, my revenue so that I could, I don't know, invest uh, in, a, in a designer now that can actually <laughs> uh, help me put a better uh, look and feel on the blog, right? And so I could do that by basically transferring ownership of the lock that's on my blog to maybe, I don't know if it's a DAO, but some contract that would split the revenue between me, the writer, the author, and a designer who's actually worked on the design for my blog. And so that's something that we really are excited about. The idea of kind of leveraging these revenue-generated assets, uh, the, to the locks, to allow creators to kind of raise money or, or share the revenue or kind of collaborate on different things. Hmm, interesting. And the membership itself happens through... Like, I'm, I'm just trying to visualize in my head as you're explaining the whole process. Is it done through non-fungible tokens? Exactly. I should have mentioned this. You're right. It's actually mm -hmm. this. It's a non-fungible token. So I, I, in, uh, I'm i French, as you might have guessed with my accent at this point, and I live in the US. But when I tell <laughs> people uh, about Unlock, a lot of people say, oh, this is like the country club. And I have no idea what a country club is. But apparently, this is the same idea where you get a card that gives you access to some... I don't know, a venue and some perks yeah. that the country club offers. Here, it's an NFT. It's a non-fungible token that sits in your wallet. Uh, we're using the same standard that CryptoKitties uses, ERC721. People can see them in the wallet, transfer them from their OpenSea uh, website, from the OpenSea website, sorry, or do a lot of things that uh, they can do uh, using any ERC721. Got it. And uh, one more technical question. Curious why you decided to build on top of Ethereum. Uh, so, really, when I started to look at this about a year and a half ago, uh, there was two, I mean, three criteria that I was looking at, uh, which I think are still mostly true. The first one was, it's smart contract based. I know there's ways to do scripting on Bitcoin, but it was much harder uh, to, to, to get something out there. There's not as many tools in the ecosystem. So, that would have been the first one. So, a, pro a production, we didn't say great, but like something in production that has smart contracts. So that was the first point. The second one is exactly what I alluded to is like the ability of having a developer ecosystem. Like I am myself not a great developer. If I can reuse some of the stuff that other people have built on, I I want to do that. And so the fact yeah, that- Yeah, that's a big one. Exactly, that's a huge one. A ton of dev tools, a ton of, even like tutorials uh, to actually do things is extremely helpful. And the third one was uh, we need, I mean, we need a, uh, a blockchain that actually has um, kind of a cryptocurrency that is usable by anyone. And I know when I say this, it's obviously not the case, but something that doesn't require somebody to go into a dark alley to get some coins, uh, something that in the litmus, the litmus test was like, can you buy this token on Coinbase? And about a year ago, I think they only had uh, either Ether, um, Ether Classic or Ethereum has the currency that you could purchase on Coinbase for a smart contract based uh, blockchain. Honestly, at this point, uh, I love the Ethereum community. I think that's actually one of the strongest uh, selling points of the Ethereum space. Uh, it is still, uh, in my mind, I, and I think it's proven at this point, uh, the second largest blockchain and the largest smart contract platform. However, um, honestly, we're not tied uh, beyond the fact that smart contracts are deployed there to that platform only. Like if at some point, and again, I'm, I'm, I have no idea whether it's going to happen, um, a much better platform emerges, We'll obviously consider that. Um, I do think that ETH 2.0 could be that much larger, much, sorry, much better platform, and then we would definitely migrate to that at some point. That makes sense. Uh, just shifting gears a bit and kind of thinking more broadly about the market. Of course. What's your take on what's 
what's missing or what is required in order to get to mass adoption of crypto? Yeah, honestly, I think at this point, it's actually, um, it's not so much that people are not familiar with these. It's, and, and again, I can preaching from my own church here, is that there's actually very few things that people, most people do on a daily basis for which blockchain is useful for. Uh, I mean, obviously the remittance use case is is useful in the context of people transferring money overseas. Even this is some, even if this is something that a lot of people do, I don't think it's a thing that most people do on a kind of a daily basis. Um, outside of this, digital gold, yes, it's obviously a, a very interesting selling point and selling argument for cryptocurrencies. I, I mean, I actually don't have non-digital gold, uh, and I never had gold in my in my home before, so I don't know that it solves a lot of people's problems. Um, so I think at this point, what we miss is actually applications for which. Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrencies are actually useful to people. And that's literally what we're trying to build with Unlock is like make this crypto technology useful uh, or create one more use case, uh, maybe because I do think that some of the existing use cases are useful uh, to increase adoption. So I think people will use more crypto and blockchain if they are using products that actually use crypto and blockchain more. Yeah, one thing I really believe in is we need to make the technology ideally invisible, right? So people using crypto and maybe not even realizing they do. Like, for instance, I can imagine a world where people use Unlock, but it just works seamlessly, right? And it's just very easy to get beyond that paywall once you pay. And maybe you don't even realize that you're using crypto, right? Maybe you're even using like a fiat or a stable coin and on the back end, it just uses crypto agreed. technology. Yeah, agreed. I think that's definitely one of the things that would, I mean, it's kind of like the, uh, when that happens, I know, I mean, I think that's when we can say, hey, we won. Like basically that's when we say, hey, all right, people use this. They don't yeah. care about the fact that it's crypto based. They don't know about the complexities that it, that it has to solve because it's crypto based, but they use this, I think that's when we win. And if you think about the web, it's the same thing. Like, uh, I mean, you worked at Facebook. Obviously, Facebook is a way to get connected with everybody in the world. I don't think anyone thinks about TCP IP, uh, routers, kind of any of these things when they chat with their parents or cousins uh, on the other side of the globe. Um, and I think we need to have the same goals where when I transact with cryptocurrencies, I don't have to think about gas, about uh, fees, about miners, about um, inflation, all of these things that we talk a lot, argue a lot about, um, but at some point are actually not that useful uh, to know about for people. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I just want to get access to the content I care most about. And if I can get access to it on a more tailored basis and in a more cost efficient way, that's awesome. Right. How, how do I do it? Maybe I don't really care as a, as a user. Yep. That, that's a very good point. However, what I want to mention, and I think this is important, is like we get to that only if we can learn from the experience and we can see, all right, this thing that we do, uh, this is easier to do this way or, or, or that friction, we can remove it by doing this. I think we only know about the friction, the tensions, the, 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 the complexities if we, and I say we, is like people in the ecosystem start to use more our own products. Like I feel like... One of the big frustration and kind of pet peeves is like I was at uh, Ethereum DevCon in Osaka a couple of weeks ago and I was asking people like, hey, what's your crypto wallet uh, of choice on your phone? And a lot of people, I was surprised. I mean, it wasn't one. It was more than more than it should have been. A lot of people told me, I actually don't have a crypto wallet on my phone. And to me, that's kind of mind-blowing that you're building in that space. You care about this. You maybe even have some token that you hope will appreciate, but you're not 
walking the walk. You're actually not yourself trying to understand what it means to build the world that you're preaching about. And so that's that's actually my pitch to all of your readers. Like, do your homework. Like, install a wallet on your phones. Uh, go to my blog, or I mean, that's self-serving here. Obviously, go anywhere. Like, do <laughs> some stuff. Next time, next time you owe somebody money, rather than use Venmo or or, or any of the kind of money transferring things. Just try to do it with Dai. Try to say, hey, I'm going to send you $5 or USDC. Like, pick crypto, uh, even though it's more complicated, it's kind of harder, it's uh, a bit more risky. Pick crypto every time you can when you get a choice between different things, because this is how we collectively understand what we're building and how we can make things better. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's shocking when you see some people who don't use the products they're developing. Oh, you know, related products that use the technology they're building on top of. Yep, exactly. What are you most excited about Beyond Unlock, just in the space in general? Any any specific developments that you see that you're excited about thinking a few years down the road? Yeah, um, I'm actually very excited about the idea of tokenizing everything. I, I think that's kind of like a, a cliche at this point, but the idea of saying that a lot of the... A lot of the representation that we have, so there's like the physical world and the non-physical world, right? Like a, a house is a house, but the house has a lot of non-physical representation, like the deed or the uh, the access cards to get to see what, what the exit, the keys to see who can get into this. All of these things can eventually be tokenized, and I think that's actually one of the things that I'm most excited about. Is like we're we're finally at a point where, and that's kind of almost uh, connects to the internet of object kind of trend, is like. We have the physical world and we'll, with crypto and blockchain, we'll finally have a way to kind of map that physical into completely uh, virtual worlds that allow to many, many different things. And that's actually one of the areas that I'm generally very excited. So when I see somebody kind of tokenizing weird things, I'm like, oh, this is cool. This is something that I, I want to use and I want to use this. And so games is, is a, clear, a clear example. Uh, but I do think that membership... And going back to unlock is is one of the one of the exciting one as well. Uh, obviously, currencies is a pretty obvious one. Uh, deeds, uh, contracts of any kind, uh, these things are to me very exciting. Yeah, I agree. Especially, I think when you consider the case for tokenization of illiquid assets, right? For instance, real estate and so forth, presents a huge opportunity. And what, what's your view on Bitcoin? Uh, so I, it's Bitcoin is actually I've had a, a funny story. So I discovered Bitcoin extremely early, like in in April of 2011, uh, kind of out of luck. Uh, I was working on on Superfeeder, the RSS feed uh, application that I mentioned earlier, and one of the person I work with uh, wanted to be paid with, in Bitcoin because they didn't want to be paid in dollars. And I was like, "What's Bitcoin?" <laughs> and so he he told me a bit about, about Bitcoin. <laughs> That's a high salary these days. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, was, if he did get paid. Uh, so he did. I think. I mean, I did pay him in, in Bitcoin. I don't know. Maybe he changed it to some other currency quickly. I don't know. Um, I kind of lost track with that person, but I should. I should email him again. Uh, and basically, I went to my my account and I said, "Hey, he's, he's in an island sipping margarita." Maybe he is, or completely off the chain. I don't know. Uh, completely off the grid. Um, so basically, I emailed my my CPA and tell her like, "Hey, uh, I want to be this guy in Bitcoin." And the CPA was like, "What?" And I tell her, well, it's actually, he wants to be paid in Bitcoin. How do I do this? She says, I don't care. You just go purchase some of your thing, pay yourself in dollar. Well, assume that he's being paid in dollar. And then how you actually transfer the money to him is a different story. And I don't want to know about it. So I went on to uh, Moncox at the time and purchased Bitcoin. 
uh, <laughs> on Mongox with uh, wow. uh, 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 Carpilis, Mark Carpilis, the French guy. Uh, and so we had a, actually have a bunch of emails exchanged with him. Uh, I mean, I paid the, and I paid the contractor. Um, that was, and I left a, a little bit of the change because uh, by the time I actually transferred the Bitcoin to him, the value of Bitcoin had appreciated. So I was left with a couple more uh, Bitcoin. I mean, uh, after this, um, it after this, I completely lost track. Like this, this is, I mean, this is obviously cypherpunk, uh, but way too complicated for me. <laughs> uh, even though I'm a software engineer, I was like, how that works is crazy. I'm never going to be able to, <laughs> to, to, to make use of this. Um, fast forward a couple of years, uh, my good friend Jan, uh, was actually a VC in Switzerland, um, tell me about Ethereum. And that was, I think, before or right after the pre-sale or something like this. And tell me, hey, there's new blockchain stuff called Ethereum that actually aims at decentralizing the web. It's more uh, kind of uh, web-friendly, if you wish, through smart contract than, than what Bitcoin is. And so I started to look at this. And, and again, Yen was right. And I was completely wrong. I was like, oh, this is way too complicated. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. And so I, I, I dropped the ball um, again. Uh, and then the third try was finally the good one. I was at Medium after I sold uh, Superfeeder to them. So Medium, the publishing platform. I worked for Medium for about two years and I worked on a bunch of different things. And one of the things that I worked on, obviously, when I was there was actually crypto. I was kind of looking at um, crypto as an ecosystem and see how Medium could leverage that to kind of improve a bunch of things on their platform. And so that's when I stumbled upon, again, uh, crypto and Bitcoin and Ethereum. And that's when I was like, all right, this is actually much more interesting than what I thought. It's maybe also a bit more usable than what I <laughs> thought at the time. And, and that's when I, I, I went on down the, the rabbit hole. Got it. And when was that? Um, 2017, early 2017. I see. And at that point, you became, I guess, convinced about the potential in crypto and kind of started thinking about Unlocked. Exactly. That's when I was like, oh, this is actually much more interesting than what I initially dismissed and again like I'm, I'm i'm not a visionary in any way on that front i was like i dismissed it twice before uh before being able to actually see the value um and that's when it, it became clear to me that it was interesting i wanted to build stuff on crypto at medium but it was kind of not happening uh fast enough i guess uh, i decided to build things myself i see and what did you do at medium by the way we didn't get to cover that earlier yeah, so I worked on a lot of different a lot of different things. Uh, when I first joined, I obviously worked on RSS, uh, AMP, Instant Articles, which are like uh, kind of mostly all about syndication. Uh, so that was kind of the first couple of months. Uh, then I worked a lot on SEO. Uh, Medium's SEO was not great um, for a lot of reasons, and I worked a lot on that, and we got pretty good results, which is pretty exciting. Uh, and then I worked on decentralizing Medium, which um, included stuff around cryptocurrencies. Yeah, that's roughly what I did, did during my two years there. Got it. Cool. So, Julian, really great talking with you. Appreciate, again, you taking the time to come on the show. And very much look forward to see what's next for uh, Unlock. Sounds really exciting what you guys are working on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, please, people, check out uh, unlock-protocol.com uh, and join us on the Telegram anywhere, ask questions, uh, help us find bugs, issues, challenges, like challenge us, like tell us that what we do is broken so that we can make it better. That's, that's really my, my plea to, to you guys. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.